Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Two Wings Seminar. The Two Wings Seminar is uh, built uh, for the faculty and community, uh, both prospective and current, at Holy Apostles College and Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut. And it takes its cue from uh, the writings of St. John Paul II in Fides et Ratio, where he says that faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word, to know himself. So that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. So today we have a special treat. It's an extended webinar, and uh, it is being led by Dr. John Hittinger, who is Adjunct Professor of Philosophy at Holy Apostles and Professor of Philosophy at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The title of his talk is Moral Leadership, the Development of Conscience in Oneself and in Others. And uh, he describes it as an exploration of the work of Alexander Scholzenitsyn to, uh, to derive some principles for moral leadership. One must no longer live by lies, but rather seek the truth about the good in living the truth. So, uh, Dr. Hittinger, welcome. Thank you, Sebastian. It's a delight to be here to talk on this topic in the Fides et Ratio webinar. Absolutely. Uh, before you get started, let me give our listeners a uh, way to connect with us. If uh, during the question and answer period, and Dr. Hittinger will talk for about 45 to 50 minutes, um, you would like to call in and ask Dr. Hittinger a question, uh, you may do so using this number, and we'll give it again uh, at the conclusion of his talk. The number is 515 9344. I can't believe I blanked on that when I said it so many times. Um, you can call, however, uh, if you are unable to make a toll call. You can call toll-free at 844-801-6666. The access code, uh, once you dial the number, you'll be asked by a nice lady. You'll be asked to please enter your access code. The access code is 914-121. And then you'll hit the pound button, and that'll put you in. If you come into the talk uh, while Dr. Hittinger is still talking, I will mute you, and then I'll unmute the microphones at the end of the presentation. And then you'll be able to ask questions or make comments and uh, fully engage uh, with Dr. Hittinger and his topic for today. So with that, uh, Dr. Hittinger, the show is all yours. Well, thank you again, Sebastian. Um, to Holy Apostles College for your great work in apostolate, particularly this Two Wings webinar. I think my topic today is really perfect for the, the theme of faith and reason or fides et ratio, because the question of moral leadership and conscience and looking at conscience is something that definitely requires both faith and reason. 
You know, I love that image of the two wings, particularly after spending some time as a civilian professor at the Air Force Academy, that yes, flight requires two wings. And if you only have one, you're going to go in a circle and you're going to crash. So we need both faith and reason when it comes to our our moral life, and particularly when it comes to questions of conscience. I developed this talk, at least a version of it. I'm revising it some for this afternoon, but I was invited by the U.S. Army chaplains to give a talk at an annual conference they had for the senior leadership of the Army chaplains, led by a fantastic uh, priest, General Father Hurley of the Boston Diocese. And um, the question for the group was, what is moral leadership? Because that has become something of a buzzword, not only in the military, but I think throughout our society, to recognize the need for leadership, and then we come to see we need more than just leadership, we need moral leadership. And what that is exactly, and how does one foster it, discover it, what is it, that's that's one of the questions. And um, I think it's good that the the chaplains have been asked to have a hand in that in the Army because, you know, the trend in our society is to exclude religion from public things, from public discourse, from public activity. And certainly this is an area where we would do that at our own peril. And at the end, I am going to have a little quote from George Washington that I'm going to keep in my talk because I think it helps us here. But what sparked my insight to develop this paper was reading a book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I have followed him for many years when he came to the United States and gave his famous um, Harvard address. I think that was about 1974, but back in the 70s, It was just a powerful witness to the truth of God and the need for the religious principle in society. It was not well received at Harvard, as you could imagine, but it it brought him to the attention of Americans. And I started, I read the Gulag Archipelago, but... It was off my list, and it finally got onto my list, his great book, In the First Circle, which I um, read this year. It has been put into the format that it was originally, how it was originally written. It's a restored text that you should get if you want to read it. I will warn you, though, that it's over 700 pages. But with all of Solzhenitsyn, it is... It is uh, a fabulous read and uh, just great novel and great insights about human nature as well as about topics like conscience. So in this book, he does have a character who comes to discover the importance of conscience. And 
utters this statement, we should not live by lies. I'm going to come back to this, but that's actually the theme of one of Solzhenitsyn's essays, the last essay that he wrote while on Russian soil was released in February 1974, and it was entitled Live Not by Lies, in which he said the problem with our society, with the communist domination of Russia for these 60-some years, is that we've all come to live by this plethora of lies that are pumped out, and everybody's afraid to challenge it. But here's my declaration, live not by lies. Well, I think the next day it was, he was exiled to the West. And so this novel gives a concrete embodiment, and you see it in the development of a number of characters. In the first circle, references, yes, Dante, and the first circle of hell. That is the circle where the noble pagans live, who did not know Christ, but live virtually without hope as they um, pursue their various intellectual pursuits. But they're, in a way, yes, they are damned. They are in hell. So in the first circle is a reference to um, part of the gulag, which is hell, a hell on earth. And this first circle is where the Soviet regime would take the scientists, mathematicians, and engineers who had in some way offended the system or offended Stalin, and they put them to work as scientists and engineers and mathematicians to do something useful for communism. It was a part of the gulag that was much less harsh. They had food, good food. They had warm beds, they had work, they could work every day and have fellowship with the people they work with and live a somewhat meaningful life. Obviously, though, they were in prison. They could. They were without their families, they had limited contacts with their families, they were being monitored, but it was a much better life than life on down in the deeper circles of the group. Solzhenitsyn had an experience of this, of both sides of the gulag. But that's the setting for the book, in which these men who were devoted to scientific work, and as I said, have opportunities for friendship, still had to find a fundamental choice in life, whether they would serve the lies and serve the regime or not. So that just gives you some context for um, how this theme is going to open up. One of the main characters in the book discovers he can't live by the lie, and by the end of the book, he does something that gets him into the gulag. Another character in the first circle who has it made, if you will, within the system comes to see that he can no longer serve there, so he too has this epiphany of the need to live by conscience. That'd be another way to say, live not by lies, but live by the truth. The truth that you know will set you free. 
So this part one of my talk, I want to look at these voices of moral leaders. One will be Solzhenitsyn, then I'll briefly look at a couple more to lead to part two of the talk to ask what is conscience. And there we will draw upon John Paul II and Thomas Aquinas to review uh, a fundamental philosophy of conscience. And then part three will apply it to this question of, of moral leadership. Okay, so back to Solzhenitsyn now. We have this great writer who lived from 1918 to 2008, who won the Nobel Prize, was awarded the Templeton Address. In that Templeton Address Award, he said that the West has come to identify the meaning of life as the pursuit of happiness, but it's a temporal meaning of happiness in which he says the concept of good and evil have been ridiculed, banished from common use, and have been replaced by political or class considerations of short-lived value. He says it's now embarrassing to have to state that evil makes it home in the in, its home in the individual human heart before it enters a political system. I mean, I think we see this at our present time with the politically correct and the takeover of the universities and public discourse, that it's an embarrassment to talk about good and evil as something that brings us before our own conscience and before God, and that this is something rooted in each individual, and it's not the exclusive um, claim of any political party or philosophy. So the book in the first circle, I just want to tell you this character heard the one who was not in the gulag yet, but had a nice position in society. He heard many of his fellows who enjoyed the privileges of being among the communist elite. They would say, you only have one life to live. You only have one life to live, comrade. And so moral compromise was essential to this life. You have to cut corners. You have to know when to keep quiet. You have to mouth lies if you are put in that position to adulate the system. And so this one character, among others, comes to realize that the motto, you only have one life to live, is not sufficient for living a good life. And he comes to this awareness, you just have one conscience. You may have one life to live, but you only have one conscience. So a life cannot be returned when it's been lost or wasted, but a ruined conscience is a conscience that is lost and very hard, if not impossible, to get back. Now this epiphany comes more than halfway through the book when he realizes the official story about the Russian Revolution was a lie, that it wasn't a revolution it wasn't a popularly backed a national flare-up, but it was basically a conspiracy of a little clique that used violence to take over power. But he says of himself as he came to this realization, 
This is a quote. It says, he discovered he was a savage reared in the caves of social science, clad in the skins of class warfare. His whole education had trained him to take certain books on trust and reject others unread. But now he's come to see this truth, and he says, this idea, a life that's laid down cannot be reclaimed, but neither can a ruined conscience. And so he does go on to speak the truth and do something that will get him in trouble with the powers that be. A similar thing is said by Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago, and that is when the main character wakes up one morning on his cell bed made of rotting straw, and he says, bless you, prison. Bless you, my rotting straw on my bed. I bless you because it's now been disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties, but through every human heart through all human hearts, and this line shifts. It oscillates with the years, even within hearts overwhelmed by evil. One small bridgehead of good is retained, and even in the best of hearts, there remains a small corner of evil. Now, here again, I would comment, this is where conscience comes in. The idea is conscience is that bridgehead of good, It is that light illuminating the good that we can always turn towards and begin a recovery. And on the other hand, even in a life that is lived well, there's a small corner of evil that can begin to influence one's action if we do not maintain our conscience in its sensitivity and its Um, awareness of our life before God. And then finally, I would mention, he he brings this up in the book, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denesevich. I think you'll see there's this Baptist inmate, Alashoka, who encourages Ivan to pray at the end of the day, to pray the Our Father and exhorts him to pray for his daily bread and for God to, quote, remove the scum of evil from our hearts. Now, the main character scoffs at prayer, but I think we we see this idea being brought forward that life needs this attention to what is in our heart. So Solzhenitsyn does say it's the struggle with evil within the human being that requires religion. It requires the turn to the transcendent, to God. And he says further, it's impossible to expel evil from the world entire in its entirety, but it can be constricted within each person. The meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking and prospering, but in the development of soul. So that is the lesson I see from Solzhenitsyn that brings our attention to the importance of conscience, to have that capacity to, first of all,
have our own self-possession and make a, a meaning of our life, let alone be able to lead others. I would also mention another witness to conscience was Andrei Sakharov. He is the one who developed the Russian nuclear bomb, but came to understand that even a scientist must exercise conscience. And he was warned by the powers that be that scientists should only improve weapons, not discuss how they are to be used. Sakharov discovered that no, each human being must shoulder their responsibility. There is a capacity antecedent to every specialization, and that is conscience that a human being must cultivate and develop. I would also reference, and you can look at my last um, podcast on this, the awakening of consciences in Poland in their revolt against the Soviet Union, but there's no need to repeat that one now. But my last example of a voice of moral conscience would be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who did go to Thomas Aquinas and Augustine to talk about the higher law, the higher law to sort out the just and unjust law and he would say that one must awaken conscience in fellow citizens about the unjust law. So the moral leader in these cases, I would say, returns to conscience, awakens conscience in those whom he leads, and gets them to see the world differently than they might have seen it under the slogans of a political party, maybe the slogans of a um, just a, a popular way of living. So that's sort of my first part then, that conscience and moral leadership has to do with rejecting lies and compromises. Now, obviously, prudence requires compromise. That's another question of political philosophy. But when one does that, one can never do evil one should not lie about it. That's a different meaning of compromise. This idea of rejecting a lie and compromising with the truth and not refusing to state the truth. It is also this matter of overcoming evil and encouraging good in our lives and the lives of those around us. John Paul II had a phrase that I often like to use in which he talks about the the moral leader of the day would know how to see that ethics should be above technology and to value persons over things and spirit over matter. I like that trilogy. Each one of those could be elaborated. But by ethics over technology, he doesn't mean rules primarily. Yes, rules can come in or policies and laws, but he means ethos. He means the orientation of the heart towards the good, the true good about man. And the valuing of persons over things, John Paul II would use that for his personalist ethic, that much of what we do that our conscience should take note of is whether we treat persons as mere things 
or respect them and their true good. So what is conscience? Let's move on to this next part of my talk today. This should be a review for many of you, but it's always worth doing. John Paul II in On the Splendor of Truth says this, which is actually a quote from Gaudium et Spes, number 16, on conscience. In the depths of his or her conscience, the person detects a law which he does not impose on himself, but which holds him to obedience, always summoning him to love good and avoid evil. The voice of conscience can, when necessary, speak to his or her heart more specifically. Do this, shun that. For the person has in his or her heart a law written by God. To obey it is the very dignity of man according to which he will be judged. Further, the religious dimension of conscience, of course, is that it is a law above us. To fully appreciate it, we see that it's a law that comes from God. It's not a heteronomy, a law imposed against us and our own good or our own mature freedom. But it is a law that is within us, on our heart, that assists us in becoming who we ought to be. Another phrase that is found in Gaudium et Spes and used often by John Paul II is the statement that conscience is the sanctuary of man where he is alone with God, whose voice echoes within him. I think this is something we would find in St. Augustine's discovery of conscience in the Confessions. In um, Book 11, as he talks about memory, one of the deep sources of a memory beyond our just temporal memory is the recollection of the, the moral principles, but even deeper than that is this area that Augustine calls the sanctuary of man where the truth of God resounds. Another phrase used by St. Bonaventure and brought over into the um, Veritatis Splendor is the idea that conscience is God's herald and messenger, not commanding things on its own authority, but commands them as coming from God's authority like a herald when he proclaims the edict of God. So you see, there are two aspects to this idea of conscience. It's the capacity to know moral values, commands, and laws. But more specifically, it is the application of these norms to the immediate task at hand. It's an inner voice in which a very, in a very personal way informs the human person what should be done, and what should be avoided. So Thomas Aquinas will say, technically or specifically, conscience is not the capacity, but the act. And he said that's evident from the very name conscience means the relation of knowledge to something. 
that is the relation of knowledge to an act. For conscience, he says, may be resolved into cum alio scientia. That is a knowing. It, it's, it's, it's to do something with knowing. Knowledge applied to an individual case. In this case, the act. So conscience is an act, he says. But these two parts of conscience are, yes, the application of principles, the practical reasoning to particular acts. Joseph Pieper calls this in his Four Cardinal Virtues, the circumstantial conscience, an act of judgment about what I must do in the circumstances. Obviously, though, it takes not only knowledge of the particulars, but also of the eternal truth, the natural law. So that that second meaning of conscience, Pieper calls the the deep conscience, or the, the habit of principles, if you will. Cinderesis. And I, I believe I mentioned this in an earlier talk, but I'll mention it again, that Pope Benedict XVI has a marvelous essay on conscience in which he thinks we do need to bring back into play this notion of anamnesis or recollection to supplement the idea of cinderesis, which is the habit of principles. Even more, we need that recollection that we are creatures that we are sons and daughters of God, and that that's often now where conscience errs, is that it forgets that we are creatures and puts forward these new ideas that conscience is no more than the human creation of its own authentic principles, you know, that Kantian idea, we give the law to ourselves, or even more radically with, with Nietzsche, that we create the good and evil. There's nothing above us, nothing by which we measure our act or will other than our own impulse or idea. But with that said, you know, Aquinas treats this problem of the erring conscience. And I think this is where um, it's a particular challenge for moral leadership, both for the, the one who must lead, but also in dealing with those whom one encounters, who is erring in conscience. The paradox is the erring conscience must be followed. It is binding. Because if someone does believe that their act is something that is according to moral principle, and even more so that which is from God, from what is sacred, it would be wrong not to follow it. But on the other hand, the paradox is it does not excuse. It is not right to act in such a way. So again, if one thinks that um, lying to further a political cause is justified by the end, it's an erring conscience. 
if one thinks that's the right thing to do, one has to do it morally. But it does not excuse. The resolution of this, of course, is the person is open to change, Aquinas says. They are bound to search for the truth. And I think that's part of the message we see in the Solzhenitsyn works, that his characters are open to the truth of God. They will learn from their bitter experience. I mean, that's also the teaching of Augustine's Confessions as well, that one over time will come to see good and evil for what they are. Now, in our day, it it may take more time and more work because there are so many things that are obscuring conscience, various ideologies, various kinds of conveniences that um, people are used to. But here is where, this is one reason I think it's useful for people to read Solzhenitsyn because it comes from another culture, another time that's almost unimaginable to us. You know, when John Paul II was elected Pope, he talked about the Holy Spirit chose a man from another, a distant country. Well, Poland was not that distant from Rome on the map, but it was distant in that life under communism was so hard to imagine for many in the West just what challenges it gave to those, what burdens and miseries, but particularly the moral challenges. So one can see how conscience does have the opportunity to come alive. Now, we could further say here that we can err about the truth of the good or about moral facts or the scope of the principles of application. These would all be parts of, a, of another talk, say, on conscience about the ways in which conscience errs. But again, all of them get back to the fallibility of the human person, the finitude of the human person, so that we are open, if we're open to conversion, and we know we're bound to search for truth, to seek the light, that can bring us home. You know, Cardinal Newman once said, I pray that I will not sin against the light, or even as he looked at his past, I've not sinned against the light. It's the light that will bring the heart to God, the light of the good. And perhaps this is also relevant to um, one aspect of our Lord's statement that the unforgivable sin is the sin against the Holy Spirit. I know in, in essence that has to do with the denying the forgiveness and mercy of God. But I think there's also an aspect to it in which one refuses the light because the spirit, of course, is the spirit of truth, whom our Lord says when he comes will convince the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So that is, again, a, a supernatural assistance to conscience that God in his mercy has given to the world after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. 
All right. Well, let's go now to part three of my presentation today, and that is how can we bring this to the issue of moral leadership? What is moral leadership, and how can conscience, well, not only how can it, but how must it, how must conscience be um, at, at the heart of moral leadership in the preparation of a moral leader and what leadership ultimately will rest upon is the development of conscience in oneself and in others. It's the seeking the truth about the good and living the truth. You know, by the way, that is also a part of the documents of Vatican II on religious liberty, is that religious liberty, that right of conscience, flows out of that prior duty, of course, to seek the truth about the good and to live the truth. And that's why there's this recognition of a social and political right to conscience to not force beliefs on others and also to allow the pursuit of truth and to live by the truth within, of course, the limits of the common good. But that, too, is, is another great topic. But let's say on moral leadership, I think we'll see where a religious dimension is important, and that's why I told the chaplain corps that they are uniquely situated to work on that task. Because if you think about it, actually the, the question they gave me was this, and I, I think we can extrapolate to any type of situation involving professional or political life. Their question was, given policy and law uh, and even culture that's developed in an institution, is there any room for religion? That, that was a way they threw the question at me to prepare. And as I thought about it, yes, that's, that's where conscience does emerge here because law, law will formulate a policy. You know, John Courtney Murray said something like, policy is where law and ethics do come together because policy has to be a a principled formula, if you will, for how one will act or how we plan to act. But the law does need that aspect of, at some point, ethical decision-making. Actually, I meant to flip that around some. Let me, let me go at it this way. That ethical decision-making that's often taught in the business schools, medical schools. I know at the military academies because I did teach at the Air Force Academy and I've, I've worked with people at the Naval Academy and so on, and, and West Point. All the cadets take a class in ethics, which a great part is ethical decision-making. But, you know, ethical decision-making takes the principles to a degree, it takes them on a hypothetical basis, and often it's taught 
as you know, here is a utilitarian view, here is a Kantian view, here's natural law. At the end of the day, it's got to be measured by law or a policy. But where does that come from? You know, I remember discussing in class after watching Saving Private Ryan about whether one can shoot prisoners. Now, I think the moral argument would be no, because it is a direct killing of one who is no longer posing a threat, and one is that that's murder. Some of the cadets objected, and I said, well, at least you need to know your own moral code would prohibit you from doing that. But if your only recourse is law, see, that's not going to be enough for moral leadership. So on a more positive side, I would say we could go to character development. That's also a part of the um, military academy training. I think it is also implicitly, if not explicitly, part of any institution that there are qualities of character that define the association, many of them useful for unit cohesion and efficiency. They're maintained through custom and a social ethos or inculcated through socialization. <laughs> but again, what, what is our measure of character development? On what basis can we improve character? Is that even possible? You see, I think that's what brings us back to the question of conscience, is that character is fine and good. I mean, for example, in the military, we cultivate courage. But again, I learned reading Joseph Pieper that St. Ambrose said, courage without justice is a lever of evil. Well, justice gets us closer to the question of conscience, that you, know, you need to know the principles of right and the source of what is right, as people will say in the four cardinal virtues. Ultimately, right is that which accords with the creation, with the created order. So we're back to needing conscience and the awareness of the transcendent good, the truth of human nature. So I would say this is where we need more than the culture, I'm sorry, more than the character formation that goes to culture. We need the spring of that, which is conscience. We need the capacity to form judgments about our actions in light of good and evil. We need the, well, with leadership, I would say, a personal witness to the truth of the good and being able to give an account of that. We are not locked within our culture. I think that's one of the lies or things that obscures conscience today is some kind of either Freudian view or Marxist view, which are reductionist, that good and evil are just the epiphenomenon that comes from social, a social function to get conformity, or it simply reflects an economic interest. 
those are sort of the Freudian and Marxist denials of, um, of conscience. So the reasons I would say if moral leadership requires this awareness of conscience and the maintaining of conscience in oneself and in others, religion is clearly part of it because the very logic of conscience is that it requires a vertical axis. That it, that it is a truth that one must recognize. I would also say that history concerning the witness to conscience, the revolutions of conscience, from Martin Luther King Jr.'s solidarity, I would add in Abraham Lincoln, Gandhi, and even simple folk like you probably never heard of Harry Stanley, but I did research on him from my talk to the Army. He was a private who refused to participate in the My Lai Massacre because he said it's wrong. And later he said, I, I know it's wrong because I read the Bible and I know that it's wrong to act like this and to take the lives of innocent people. A third reason I would give here is that human existence facing the mystery of good and evil. We see the alternatives just do not get to the majesty of personal conscience. I've already mentioned the Marxist, that it's economic superstructure, the Freudian, that it's superego, Durkheim, it's social cohesion. Here's where I think the church is so strong. It's, it's really on the mysteries of life, on the mysteries of human existence that are there every day. Birth, death, conscience, love. I mean, here, the reductionist accounts don't do justice to what life is life like as we live it and as we know it comes to us that conscience faces us squarely where we must admit we have sinned or we have done wrong. This very popular program in the parishes calls, called That Man Is You go, helps men come, I think, to develop their conscience. It's based on David being confronted by the prophet who gets him to see that the one who did wrong, that man is you. There's no getting around that. There's no explaining it. There's no explaining it away. And that's where you have to take it in a personalist philosophy and see that there is this transcendent or vertical axis that points towards God. And, of course, my, my concluding thought on that would be that this is Newman's, one of his arguments for the existence of God, that he was once said, I think someone wanted to dismiss him by saying, well, of course you defend conscience because you believe in God. And he said, no, I believe in God because I understand conscience, that conscience for Newman is a, is a way to God, a proof for God. 
because he says, this is a quote from one of his writings on conscience, a famous one of his, where he says, conscience does not repose on itself, but vaguely reaches forward to something beyond itself and dimly discerns a sanction higher than self for its decisions. We are accustomed to speak of conscience as a voice or the echo of a voice like no other dictate in the whole of experience. So you see here, I would conclude by saying then the task for development of conscience, that should be for every soul and one who has influence over others in a family, at work, in the military, wherever it may be. That should be a a task that's number one, a daily task. You know, the need to recover conscience because of the obstacles to truth and honesty. That's where I like the Solzhenitsyn, live not by lies. In his declaration, it's a very stirring one that would actually be probably impossible. No, I won't say impossible, but very difficult. I'll just read you briefly from it. I will not write, sign, or publish in any way a single line distorting, as far as he can see it, the truth. Will not utter a lie in private or in private conversation. Will not cite in writing or in speech a single guiding quote for the gratification, insurance, or success at work unless he believes it's true. Will not raise a hand in vote for a proposal which he does not sincerely support. I like this one. Will at once walk out from a session, meeting, lecture, play, or film as soon as he hears the speaker utter a lie ideological drivel or shameless propaganda. I've often thought about that at faculty meetings at some of our universities. Uh, One should regularly walk out of such meetings because such things are just part of the air that people breathe. But back to that idea, the task of recovery of conscience is is to return to the truth of the good. A second part of that task is the formation of conscience, you know, to to look at and to share as it is appropriate the moral code of the great religions, if that's what your friends subscribe to, to remind them, and certainly Catholics, to know what we have as a great gift is the infallible teaching on faith and morals. But as John Paul II does also in Veritatis Splendor, see how that's embedded in the religious narratives of the rich young man, the prodigal son, so many great stories that should stir us daily to return to the Father and to seek to live as he wants us to live. And then finally, I would say, is the maintenance of conscience in ourselves and as appropriate others. And that is through accountability to 
we all have to hold each other accountable for our deeds and not to be silent. If it's one's position to say something, it ought to be said. And certainly the examination of conscience for ourselves and to help those and encourage those who, again, are under our influence, that should be certainly, a, for a Catholic, a regular thing in the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, but also the daily examination of conscience, for which we have many good guides and models that one can find to rightly examine ourselves and ask God for the light of conscience every night to honestly look at what we've done and resolve to do better. It's just the good old teaching we all know. But I think we should see now in light of the crisis in our church, which I won't comment on, but I think everybody can see the application, live not by lies. It's in our political order. You know, Solzhenitsyn in the first circle says, watch out for political parties because they're going to make you sign on to things you ought to know are not true. I'm not saying our two parties are morally equivalent, but I would say there are moral hazards in political life because of the intense partisanship of our time. And so, my friends, as I conclude, I did promise you a patriotic closing, and that would be a eulogy. Actually, it's, it, it's not Washington's statement. I, I do have a good statement of Washington about, you know, his farewell address said that anyone who says our country can survive without religion, without religion, is not a friend of the country. It's essential for our flourishing. But I would turn now to John Carroll, the first bishop and archbishop of Baltimore, who gave a eulogy for Washington in St. Peter's Church in Baltimore on February 22, 1800, in which he said of Washington that he said, Washington would have us bear, or we, thinking about Washington's life, his deeds, and his sayings, should, we should bear in mind that nations and individuals are under the moral government of an infinitely wise and just providence and that the foundations of their happiness are morality and religion, and their union amongst themselves their rock of safety, and that to venerate their constitution and its laws is to ensure their liberty. But again, I'll just draw your attention to that first statement, that nations, the United States, individuals, you and me, Everything is under the moral government of an infinitely wise and just providence. And that should be recognized every day. It should be recognized publicly and privately because that is the basis for our flourishing. So I think with that, I will end my talk and I look forward to your comments and questions to pursue this question of conscience and moral leadership. Thank you, Sebastian, and I turn it over to you to field some questions for us. 
Well, thank you very much for um, for uh, this presentation today, Dr. Hittinger. That was uh, very profound and very useful. And um, we have uh, in our listening audience actually a small auditorium of people. So I'm going to give them the number and allow them to call in as well. I okay. have formed two questions uh, that I can ask um, uh, if, uh, in, if we do not receive callers, but um, I'm fairly certain that this little group of uh, attendees, uh, this small auditorium, will uh, at least uh, one or more will call in. In fact, one of them just did from a 203 area code. Okay. So, um, but be before we go to him, let me give the number one more time. Uh, the number is 515-604-9344. So 515-604-9344 using access code 914-121-POUND. So uh, our caller from the 203 area code, hello. Hi, Sebastian. It's Joe. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? I'm pretty good today. How are you? I'm doing very well. Joe, uh, uh, Dr. Hittinger, uh, Joe is one of our show hosts on WCAT Radio. He's one of the, uh, the over three dozen show hosts uh, who Excellent. make that, sta that station possible. Great. Well, I'm glad to have you call in, Joe. What would your comment be to this afternoon? Well, I got an email from Sebastian about the show, and I decided to listen to it because the, the topic of moral values and consciousness is of great interest to me. I've just finished reading two books, one by Eckhart Tolle and one by a, a Spanish author who had an awakening in Mexico <clears throat> called The Four Agreements, and uh, consciousness is very important, but I think there is no consciousness without God's presence in a person's mind. And uh, if, if you don't have God, you don't have true consciousness. You're just like floating away. And that line between good and evil you spoke about, I've had a locution yeah. about that. And the locution I had was the line between good and evil is so thin as to be invisible at times. And uh, I, I believe that. You know, you said a wavering line. It's the same type yeah. of analogy. And yeah. uh, I've struggled. I was... Uh, coordinating international events and everything else, but my motive was not good, even though my deeds were. So motive factors in, too, to consciousness. Without yes. God, there is no good motives. So I was up at the Kripala Yoga Center in 1999 after doing an event that took four years to plan and had six divisions and 25 committees and 750 volunteers, and I was trying to coordinate that. I was so stressed, they tried to 12-step me for drinking two weeks before the event. And I went on a yoga retreat and avoided everybody for quite a while because my conscience was broken. And uh, I was at a yoga retreat, and I was going to Catholic Mass every day and going to yoga, hot Vanessa, to try to get stress out. And I'm standing in front of a picture of the Dalai Lama at the Kripala Yoga Center, Lennox Mass. And I hear an exact topic you're talking about come from the picture, from my heart. Don't let the lie you're living become the truth of who you are. Wow. And isn't that what you're talking about today? That's exactly right. I mean, that's the universal testimony. When you're that's so, the when you're so far into testimony. the lie, you wouldn't know the truth if it hit you, you know? Yes. Yes, or God in his mercy allows us to get some glimpse of it and we can make our way back, which it sounds like happened to you. Yeah, and I think the mercy is when you're living in that lie, you don't know the truth. You're fairly safe until the Spirit convicts you. Yes, Yes, well, once thank you for sharing you, you better not go backwards. Yeah, you better not go backwards once you know the truth. Then it would be bad. 
Well, that is another good point, yes, that one has to continually advance, and that is, that's where, again, I think the moral leadership comes in, is that it's, it's not something done once and for all, but it must be kept up. You know that great Saint Francis de Sales had as a motto, advance always in the love of God and man. And he explained it that, really, if it's a spiritual principle. If you're not advancing, you will be falling back. So, yes, you've got to keep it active and improve. Yeah. That's another good book I've read that Richard Roy wrote, Falling Upwards. Oh, I like that. I, I don't know that book, but I love the title, yes. Yeah, two steps forward, one step backwards. You know, it's a constant adjustment of, of what's right and wrong in most people's lives. And I'm going through yes. that still. I think we're all imperfect, you know, and uh, yes. we struggle. What I tell people when they ask me my moral philosophy right now is put one foot in front of the other and take care of what's right in front of you and try not to add your own stuff and do your best. And uh, that's probably a good philosophy for most people whose hearts are it, right. It is. It is. And, you know, Newman's prayer was just, yes, give me the light to take the step right in front of me. I don't have to see where it's all going. That's where the faith and trust in God comes in. That, I think, helps to bolster conscience is that you, you trust in God and ask for the light and you, you take the step you see in front of you. And if it was wrong, you'll find out. That's it. Experiential learning. That's how we learn. Yes. Yeah. I like this scripture, too. I will write my commandments in their hearts, and they will need no other teachers, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Yes. It's, it's everywhere, isn't it, in the Bible, this teaching about conscience as the awareness of a of God's plan of his of his rule of his the gifts that he wants to give us it's so great to be conscious isn't it i mean to be aware and awake and when yes. you're aware and awake you see god in everything i mean you can't you can't help but to see god once he wakes you up that's right well, what show is what show do you do, Joe? I'll try to tune in when I get a chance. Sure, it's called Cry Oneness. It's on Sundays at two. Uh, okay. I also, I have a book written called Cry Oneness. It's a second published, and it's the story of my how I fell and got back up, followed by sixty-five poems and locutions I've gotten in the past eight years, and uh, twelve major miracles I've had. Wow! In, uh, since I got sober, yeah. So. Uh, it's pretty Praise interesting what God can do. What God can do to a drunk is unbelievable, you know. Yeah. Yes. Well, Joe, thank you very much for calling in and for sharing your uh, your thoughts and your wisdom with us. Um, I think uh, that we have a theme, uh, which is uh, live not big, uh, live not by lies, and uh, yes. what those contributed is uh, don't let the lie you're living become the truth of who you are. Yep. Um, one of my other authors, uh, Dave Basconi, uh, just produced a book um, called Nonsense to Horse Sense, How Horses yeah. Tell Us the Truth About Ourselves and How to Live, also published by Enroute Books and Media, where he um, points out that horses are all business. 
they don't have time to live a lie. And if, if we had more horse sense, then we could get rid of much of that nonsense that we're living. And the nonsense, of course, are those lies that we tell ourselves, the lies we live by. Yes. Yeah. Or the um, lies other people told us that we believe. Right. Well, you know, that's, um, that's an interesting thing. That's one of my questions. So I'll, uh, I'll throw it out there now for you, uh, Doctor. Yeah. Um, we have uh, uh, in Aristotle's politics, um, he says that law itself well, uh, has a moral purpose. And this uh, is, is uh, what you were talking about in terms of law uh, in relation to natural law. And the moral purpose of law is to make man good. Yes. But a society based on social convention rather than natural law would seem to be contrary to that purpose. You had indicated earlier that an erring conscience binds but does not excuse. And right. so a question I formed from that statement is, what does that mean for our eternal destinies? Well, now I'm, I'm tr- help me put those two statements together now. I can field your question, but I'm thinking about the, um, your first, your tie-in with the Aristotle of the is that your your question is the is the problem that if law is to make us good and then are you further saying many of our laws are not framed with that in view that's correct yeah many of our laws are based on social convention rather than natural law and so some examples we have a law that permits abortion we have a law that permits sexual marriages uh, so those kinds of laws are not in keeping with what we know to be uh, the truth of who we are, who we're designed to be, uh, that we derive from our participation in the eternal law. So, um, but we're influenced by those kinds of things. And we live in a society which tells us that men can go into women's restrooms and uh, yes. uh, gender is dysphoric. And so we will end up with an erring conscience, yeah. which binds but does not excuse so we've got a society that seems to be heading uh, for some uh, place other uh, than joyful and eternal communion with our Creator. What do you think? Well, yes. Look, this is, I mean, there's a bunch of aspects to this question. Let me begin with the more general one, which is, this is why Catholics have such an obligation to get involved politically But the hazard of that is, right, is we've got to understand that, first of all, we have to be coherent in what we say. That is, uh, coherent in witnessing to the truth and not repeating the lie. But on the other hand, it is the teaching of Aristotle as well as Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, a recognition that earthly societies are going to be imperfect and that one must tolerate a certain amount of of evil action and even evil policy, right? If one is not able to, to change it, one has to, to deal with what is possible. So, you know, I know there are debates among pro-lifers on this, but, um, one has to keep aiming in the direction of 
a just law in which the unborn will not be murdered. But if there's a compromise, this is what I was alluding to in my talk, one may have to accept a compromise bill. That This at least is my opinion. I know some pro-lifers would disagree with this, but here's how I would take it. One accepts uh, a less than perfect bill as long as one doesn't try to rationalize why you're doing that is, that you continue to say the truth. This, this is equivalent to say some will criticize Abraham Lincoln that if he was against slavery, why did he accept, um, for example, the Emancipation Proclamation was for the Deep South and not the Middle States. One argument could be he knew that was the most he could get at that point in time. So he never said Slavery is a good thing in the Middle States. He just knew he would not get any bill if he insisted on total abolition. You, you see the point I'm making there? So that, that's one set of challenges is we have to have a witness to the true good. But politically, there'll always be limitations in what we can achieve. Now, with that said... There's also, of course, in our private lives or in our social lives at work, all of this we need the great prudence to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as a dove, you know, to, to witness to the truth. And that's, that's why, really, I don't think there's a statement one can say ahead of time because silence may be necessary in some circumstances, but certainly not lying, rationalizing, and so on. And then finally, Sebastian, I, I hope I'm getting around to answering your question. I think it, it shows the sad plight of Western society and our society in particular that I think, you know, moral leaders like John Paul II did not mince their words about that, even when they were encouraging in the good that they saw but he also spoke out about the precise things you mentioned, that, that abortion is wrong, that same-sex marriage is, is not marriage, and it's a, it's a great violation of the sacred institution of God. And actually, that's known by both faith and reason. So I, I'm, I'm going on and on here, Sebastian. Did I answer close enough, or do you want to respond and make it more precise? Well, I, I have to tell you, you've like walked right into my second question. Okay, good. So this is great. This is a good segue. But before I give that second question, I'll remind the uh, listening audience that they can call in, uh, like Joe has done, 515-604-9344 using access code 914-121-POUND. And for those who can't call... Um, through uh, a toll number, like a 515 number, we do have a 1-800 number. It's 844-801-6666 with the same access code, 914-121. So my second question brings us back to Alexander Schultzenitsyn's In the First Circle. Yes. Which is where we started. So uh, for those of you who don't have this book yet, I would encourage you to get it. 
It's a hefty sized book, about 700 pages. Um, it's well put together. It's a model for me in my publishing house, for sure. It's the first uncensored edition. That's the one you want to get in the first yes. circle. And, uh, and you're the one who tipped me off on that, uh, Dr. Hittinger. Yes, yes. That he first had to publish it. See, there's the compromise. Mm-hmm. He had to take out some chapters that were critical of Stalin to get it published at first when he was in Russia. He actually later regretted that, but this is now the the restored full edition in English translation. So an earlier version may be missing some key chapters. Right, or some poignant moments uh, within the chapters. Uh, So I found one on page 687. Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) For those of you who have the book and would like to read along. So uh, tell me if I'm pronouncing this name right. Uh, The character's name is Inakinti? Inakinti? Yes, yes. He's the main character or one of the main characters, in Akinti, yes. In Akinti. So here's how the passage reads, and it's the first full paragraph on page 687. Whenever he had thought about being arrested, in Akinti had visualized a furious intellectual duel with Leviathan, the state. He was keyed up, ready to defend heroically his life and beliefs, He had never imagined that it would all be so crude, so stupid, and so ineluctable. The people waiting for him in the Lubyanka, low-ranking, obtuse people, were uninterested in him as an individual and in the act that had brought him there, but had a zealous concern for trivialities that took him by surprise and left him helpless. In any way, what form could resistance take, and where would it get him? The repeated demands they made on him seemed so insignificant compared with the great battle ahead that it was not worth digging his heels in. But the details of this nonsensical procedure taken together served to break the will of the newly arrested prisoner. That's a powerful statement. That's, that's a chilling statement. It's, it's, yes, it's at the end of the book, and it's he has a long horror in front of him. So how, what, what question would you form? I mean, I, I've got some thoughts, you may too, about that passage, but what were you thinking about it? Well, uh, since you happen to ask, so in faith and reason, we like to think we're prepared for the big fight. Yes. But it's often all the little innocuous procedural things that flub us. And there's no, uh, in, in his case, he was prepared for a fight with a Leviathan, and he found it was a big, mushy uh, blob. Yes. Um, people who are prepared for the big stand find themselves failing, or may find themselves failing, because a lot of little inanities predispose them to follow social conventions at variance with natural law. So what advice would you, uh, Dr. Hittinger, what advice would you give to um, those of us who find ourselves in Inakinti's position. Well, that's, that's a great question, and I'll tell you this is, of course, this, this character is in the first stages of his imprisonment, just so people understand that. So he's just being processed and being interrogated and... Uh, 
but but I think there are things that come through, even though that that's not our experience. The similarity would be that, yeah, we're often dealing with people or situations that don't really have a great care about a big idea or a principle, and so it's it can be very frustrating and very um, well. It takes endurance. Uh, maybe that's the first thing I would do is, is quote for people or send them to another book. Look, this is what we professors like to do, but it's another book people need is Joseph Pieper's book on the four cardinal virtues in which he, quoting Aquinas, says that courage has more to do with endurance than attacking. That That's... That's one that has really struck me hard over the years to think about that. That courage has more to do with endurance rather than the attack. And the reason is because of the presence of evil in the world, that there are times when we can't directly attack the evil. But we do have to not lose hope. We have to maintain, again, that charity of heart of the willingness to forgive others, of, of not giving up on God. You know, that, that's, that might be more important than we think, right? That not just fighting the fight, but not despairing. I mean, honestly, in the last couple months, because of the problems in the church and the problems in the state are ongoing, I talked to my friends and it's, It'd be very easy to, again, one doesn't have to be an optimist here, but it's just saying not to just feel like there's no hope or there's just, you know, things are so bad. I mean, honestly, I shouldn't mention them, but, you know, Rod Dreher's articles, I think, now he left the church, but I think on on the present crisis, it, he, he's just... In, Totally negative, I think. Now, there's reason to be negative, and maybe this isn't the best example, but I think, don't we believe that the Spirit will work, that we will pray? Okay, that can sound ridiculous. Maybe it won't change what happens, but I think that's the first step, is to realize that the evil requires our trust in God. But the next steps are to be, I think, if you want to make the analogy with our situations today, is that um, one has to deal with the persons that surround you. So again, they may not have much interest in the principles or want to get at them. But here's where the saints also teach us about the charity, the willingness to deal with the person in front of you or next to you or next door or in your own family who who says these crazy things or or is advocating things we know are wrong but uh that's that's all i can say for now sebastian more could be said but that's all i feel like saying about it for now certainly joe did you have a thought yeah, I had a thought. It's in page 417 in the book I read. 
Until I accept every person, place, thing, and situation in my life as being exactly the way it's supposed to be in this moment in time, I cannot have true peace. So, with reference to the church and the state, I think they're both messed up right now, but I know that God can take care of it. You know, you're talking about blasphemy of the Spirit. Maybe blasphemy of the Spirit is not believing that God can take care of our country and our church. But I will tell you, I don't think the church is at a point in time where it can be healed from the inside. I think a lot of locutions I've been getting is they got to be taking care of a new emerging church from the out, outside in. There's a bunch of people I know meeting all the time. Seventy percent of Catholics aren't going to church anymore. It's a great apostasy, and uh, I don't think I can do anything about it. But I do know this. The Democrats took God out of their platform a couple of years ago, and I couldn't do anything about it because I don't want to go out drinking again. So I just did all that I could. I went and I changed my parties, and that's the end of it. The only thing I can yeah. do is silent protest. I didn't even brag about it you know, until now. Yeah, good point. Right. Well, you know, we have a great deal um, in this world uh, to bring us despair. But I hear uh, that the enemy of despair is hope. And I know from 1 Peter 3.15 uh, that we are invoked or called to always be prepared to give a reason for our hope. So um, maybe that's a good way to end uh, today's webinar is yes. to provide reasons for our hope. Uh, yes. Dr. Hittinger, uh, what is your reason for your hope? Well, that is an excellent passage, Sebastian, and I think a good place to end. I mean, look, the reasons for my hope have to do with both God as our creator and God as our redeemer. We know that he's given us this capacity of, of, to, to know the truth and to seek the good. It's often inoperative in people, but he also gave us a redeemer, Jesus Christ, who sent the Holy Spirit. And I think there's always that power of the word and the spirit working that uh, is, is a reason for great hope. Joe? I guess I could just say that the Holy Spirit is so good at moving people when they need to be moved that we just have to be patient and he'll take care of everything for us, or, or she, Holy Spirit, Sophia, maybe. Uh, I think God will take care of everything when the time comes. I don't think we have to be worried or concerned about anything. You know, that's mine um, as well in terms of salvation. Uh, I can't save myself. I know that from uh, how St. Augustine answered Pelagius. I don't have it within me to save myself, but I know that uh, God has a plan and that uh, Jesus is the one who saves. So my uh, hope in Christ enables my hope in my salvation or my faith and my trust in Christ enables that. So uh, this world uh, is always falling into despair. Uh, it's what uh, Billy Joel was singing about in his uh, popular song, We Didn't Start the Fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we're trying to fight it. And we do that by simply doing whatever he tells us, uh, which is um, to uh, go and preach to all peoples. And, uh, and perhaps uh, Dr. Hittinger and uh, Joe are doing just that, and remaining steadfast 
is enough. What do you think? Amen. Amen, brother. That's Don't what lose I say. heart, right? <laughs> yeah. I've got something I'd like to read, if you don't mind. Uh, I got this locution last week when I was really starting to go into despair, and I think it was the Lord talking to me, or the Father. Don't lose heart. Stay close to me. Be in me as I am in you. With me, there is no emptiness. Fullness and love and hope and service is my way. Never give up, but give in frequently. The world can never give you anything worthwhile, for it was never designed to. The days and years pass by so quickly when one doesn't know how to stay in the moment. The mind and time are the two greatest enemies of man. I exist only in the moment and only create and communicate with my people while there. Your past is of no concern to me. I foreknew everything you did or ever will do from the instant I created you. I am your father. I accept and love you exactly as you are. What father would give his child a serpent when he asks for a stone? Love heals all wounds. I am love and you are in love. There is no separation from love except in your mind. There is no past or future in this moment except in your mind. Every illness is caused by not living in the now. Live from your heart and not your mind, and you will have eternal joy now and forever with me. I am who I am, and you are part of me, part of my heart, window of my spirit, image of my divine love. How could I possibly not love you or my church or the United States? Thank you very much, Joe, uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, Dr. Hittinger, in the few moments we have remaining, uh, would you like to have the last word? Well, I just will, will thank you for your opportunity here on the Faith and Reason webinar and to acknowledge St. John Paul II's great vision for the church and the world, and I hope we... Um, yeah, I, I just encourage you and your efforts and all the listeners to to go back to John Paul II and um, take time to read carefully his encyclicals, homilies, Theology of the Body on Mary. He just has so much to offer in which both faith and reason will bring us along towards the good. And that's... Uh, that, that's a reason for hope is St. John Paul II and his witness to hope. So thank you all and uh, hope to talk to you soon. All right. God bless you, uh, Joe. God bless you, uh, Dr. Hittinger. Thank you for being here with us today. Uh, we've been listening to another episode of the Two Wings Seminar, a production brought to you by Holy Apostles in Cromwell, Connecticut. Many blessings to everybody. Good day. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.